I almost feel like that's why the use and practice of them went to sleep for a while because it wasn't it wasn't needed yet, and that that it's starting to wake up again because because the call is there, and they're answering it. And um, you know, between the seaweeds and then of course the mushrooms, which have a lot of similar properties but work in biologically completely different ways, which is fascinating, um, but with similar results. It's it's a really holistic approach to be eating your seaweeds and your mushrooms. Welcome, welcome. I am Amber Magnolia Hill, and this is episode 28 of the Medicine Stories podcast. On this show, we explore the mythic journeys that we undertake when coming to know ourselves through interviews with herbalists, story keepers, ancestral listeners, consciousness explorers, earth dreamers, and other wise folk. Story is medicine, magic is real, healing is open-ended and endless. And man, you want to talk about healing and the deep, deep medicine of plants, then you want to talk about seaweed, which we will be doing today with Angela Willard. I'm going to tell you a little bit about what we talk about, and then I'm going to talk a bit about myself, do some kind of life updates. So... You know, feel free to skip if you want and just get into this incredible interview. So, Angela and I talk about conscious conception, evolving as a family, and choosing a new experience. Naming children is giving them the strongest mantra they'll have throughout their lifetime. You know, that part also reminded me of something that I remember episode 22 guest. Uh, Yaya Aaron Rivera Merriman saying to me, Instagram commenting to me years ago, that uh, like the the first mythology we give our children is their name and their birth story. That's always just stuck with me, and uh, I loved that that Angela brought in this idea of their name as a mantra because they hear it so often through their lives, and our names as mantras and our names as our earliest mythology. This is also something Sophia Rose and I talked about in episode three of the show. Um, Letting the land you find yourself on guide you to your medicine. Uh, Seaweeds are regenerative cleansers for the ocean and earth and people. Addressing the question of radioactivity and the safety of consuming seaweed. Because we know that's going to be everyone's first question when we're talking about this medicine. How to sustainably harvest seaweed. And then this is really the heart of it, breaking down the medicinal content of red, green, and brown seaweeds, which are immunomodulating, which ones are antiviral, antiparasitic, cancer-fighting, helpful for digestion, thyroid issues, autoimmune diseases, liver issues, detoxification, etc. If you have a body, seaweeds can help you. Uh, the nutrients in seaweed, amino acids, iron, iodine, minerals, and more, how they work in the body and things to consider, the amazing regenerative bioremedial ecosystem healing properties of seaweed, and then we get into the constellations approach as a divination practice, uh, connecting to the maternal grandmother that Angela never knew, the vital intelligence of sub-level underground slash underwater life forms, food is medicine, hot tips for incorporating seaweeds and mushrooms into your daily life, 
and the deep soul work that motherhood requires and the challenges and gratifications that family life present. So speaking of family life, I just wanted to share a little bit about this journey that we've been on with our two-year-old Nixie over the last six weeks, I think. And, you know, there it's this interesting thing that I know that all mothers in this culture experience that, like, I feel a little nervous about talking about spending any time really focusing on my mothering on this show um, because I'm afraid that people who aren't parents or who are maybe past this stage in their lives will, like, roll their eyes and be like, oh, this is not what I'm here for. I don't care about your kids and your problems. Like, I just want to get to to the meat of it, which, again, is fine. You can fast forward on these podcasts. Um, but I know a lot of my audience are parents and episode 11, where I just talked the whole time about mothering is still one of the most popular shows I've put out. If not the most popular, I'm not sure in terms of downloads, but in terms of messages that I received, it definitely is. And I just, we just kind of went through something really big and I feel like I learned some things. And so I just wanted to share that, that story as briefly as I can, So as I talked about in episode 11, we did this very gentle sleep training at seven months old. Um, And Nixie really took to it easily. I think we just were kind of lucky that it was her personality type and she wanted that sleep. You know, she was missing a lot of sleep too by nursing all night long. And so it was amazing. Um, And we had been co-sleeping up to that point. I co-slept with my oldest until she was three and a half. But once Nixie was sleeping through the night without nursing, I was like, wow, we'd sleep a lot better if she was in a crib. And so we put her in a crib and it was great. It was fabulous. For like a year and a half, she slept through the night in her crib. I mean, of course there were, you know, the anomaly nights and all that, but for the most part. So then, yeah, about six weeks ago, exactly two weeks before her second birthday, we went to put her down for her nap one day and she was just fighting it like crazy. And naps were always really easy too. going down was really easy naps and nighttime. We would nurse downstairs and then she would sit up and reach for her dad and he would take her upstairs and put her in the crib. And that was it. And, um, so she fought that nap time. It took us like two hours. We finally got her down and we were like, wow, that was weird. Uh, well it's over now, you know, And then it happened at nighttime that night and then the next day at nap and nighttime and the next day and the next, and we realized like, oh, this is our new normal. She's, she is fighting. She doesn't want to sleep anymore. Uh, And she was waking up multiple times throughout the night, just screaming, screaming and crying. And, you know, it was just, it was so exhausting. And for me, when I get exhausted, I just go right to crying. Like I just can't help it. It just overtakes my body. And There were many mornings during that intense period where I would just wake up to her screaming or crying, especially in the morning when it was like, we have to get up now, you know, get the oldest to school and all that. And I would just start crying within like seconds of waking up. Um, And so this whole time I'm like, you know, on the internet, researching, reading, reading, Googling, 24 month sleep regression, which seems to be a thing that a lot of two-year-olds go through. Um, Also, at this point, we were starting to go to parks a lot more often in this toddler playgroup, and I was asking everyone with a kid around her age, did your child go through this? And a lot of them didn't. You know, some of them did, but none of the stories I heard were as severe as Nixie's. And what I kept reading from the quote experts is this will last two or three weeks, um, like maintain the routine, maintain the boundaries, and just keep doing what you've always done and wait for it to go away. 
But about two and a half weeks in, I was like, this is not going to go away. This is different. Like her brain just woke up in a new way. Something's different. And clearly us trying to keep putting her down on her own like we had been and not bring her into bed during the night, not nurse during the night isn't working. So after, again, like two and a half weeks of just hell and torture and crying and feeling awful and getting nothing done, I just had this big shift in my thinking where I stopped framing it as a regression if she comes back into bed with me, if I start nursing her again at night, if I have to nurse her down to sleep, all three of those things which we are now doing. Um, Because thinking of it in terms of regression and following this advice that you have to maintain things the way they were. Don't let the kid push you and don't let them win. You know, they're just trying to push the boundaries and see who can win was making us all miserable and was clearly not what she needed. You know, she was asking for what she needed. Her brain changed and she was wanting more of that closeness and connection. And this was being reflected in her daytime hours too. I mean, not only was she totally sleep deprived because of everything. Um, but she just wanted to be with me all the time and nursing like crazy. And we, it was funny too, cause we had just started thinking about maybe starting to slowly, slowly wean like a months, months long process. And we had made a whole plan for that. Then <laughs> all of a sudden she just needed me and needed to nurse more than ever. So that was another thing that we just had to abandon was that plan. Um, because we could see what she needed and it's me and it's closeness and it's physical touch. Um, And it's just knowing that that love and warmth is always going to be there for her. So as soon as I reframed it and let go of that idea of regression and realized that, well, this is just progress for us. For us, the forward motion right now is that she comes into bed with me and I nurse her to sleep every time because it's the only way she's going to go down. And it all just softened as soon as I was able to, to change my paradigm and um, so yeah, I completely nurse her to sleep for naps and night times now, which is fine. She loves it. We're both happier. It's, it's so much smoother. And I still put her in the crib at night and most, almost every night she ends up in bed with me at some point. There's been a couple where she sleeps through the night. Um, but it's been super sweet and I am not nursing at night anymore. I did that the first like week when we were transitioning back into the quote, regression, the not regression. Um, But then I remembered about this product I'd heard about. It's called Stoplight Go Light, and it's a little stoplight. Um, And you, the yellow doesn't work. It's just there to make it look right, you know. But you set a timer and the light is red. And then at the time you set it for, it turns green. So we put that in the bedroom. And luckily it's not too bright because I hate having lights at night in the room. Um, It's pretty mellow. And she knows now if she wakes up the night and she's like, nurse, nurse. And I say, the, the light is red. You know, we can't nurse. And she's like, okay. And she lays down and goes to sleep. And then in the morning when it turns green, she's stoked. She's usually still asleep, although she'll wake up a few minutes later. And we nurse. And it's just been, I feel like I really learned a lesson. One, about following internet advice. Like, you think I would know by now. You know, I've been mothering for 12 years. Um and it's just, it, it's funny because with my oldest, I was so um, just giving all the time and, you know, very, very into attachment parenting, never would have dreamed of uh, sleep training, even in the gentle way that we did with Nixie. And um, 
I had kind of really fallen so far away from that and really gotten into like the schedule and the routine and like drawing my firm boundaries and not letting her win. And that was just not working, not working. So I learned so much about observing the child, of course, and following, following what their needs are. And, you know, at some point about four weeks into this, even though things had gotten a little better, she was still screaming during the night. It was almost like night terrors. And maybe that is what was happening. But I just started to think that there was a larger, I'd been thinking this was all physical, like her brain, you know, because she did, she changed so much in those few weeks when she turned two, she's talking so much more. Um, She's more active. But I started to realize that I think there's a really emotional, spiritual thing happening with her too. And I um, started thinking about the day, August 15th, uh, that our dog Banjo was killed by a car right in front of our house, right in front of our eyes. And we were out there, me and my husband Owen and Nixie, and Banjo was there too. And like we heard our neighbor's truck coming down the road, but um, Banjo just you know, hadn't gotten himself killed yet. Like, I don't know. We just didn't, of course, didn't anticipate that this was going to happen. We had just turned on the bubble machine and we hear the neighbor's car stop. And I thought he stopped because Banjo was in the road. So I started calling Banjo, Banjo. And then all of a sudden the neighbor's out of his truck saying, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And we looked and there's Banjo just lying there. Um, so Owen immediately went up to the road to be with Banjo and to talk to the neighbor. And I just was like holding on to Nixie so tight and she was screaming, screaming and screaming. And, you know, Owen needed to be able to talk to our neighbor about what had happened. So I took her inside and I needed to tell my oldest who had turned 12 the day before what just happened to her dog. So we went inside and, um, you know, we brought Banjo down into this building on the property and laid him there. And later I surrounded him with some stones and like some, a burning candle and some flowers. And we kind of all had our time with him except for Nixie. Um, And, you know, I still, I really don't know what we should have done. We also didn't bury him with her there. We waited until her nap the next day to bury him. And as much as I think that kids should really be a part of Um, death and saying goodbye and knowing that she was not even two yet when this happened and I was really worried about how she'd feel seeing like you know dirt thrown over his body and his body totally buried Um, and in retrospect that might have been a mistake maybe she should have been there for that or maybe she should have um, spent some time with his body before we buried him but she didn't talk about it after that Uh, you know we all cried about it for days and days it was very shocking and um, then about, about 10 days later, about the day that the, the sleep stuff started, she just started looking out the window or pointing to the spot on the street when we were outside and saying, banjo car hurt you, banjo car hurt you, parking lot rules. And, you know, parking lot rules is when we're in a parking lot or by the road that we hold hands and we're very careful of the cars around us. And so, you know, I think maybe those 10 days, I don't know what was going on. She was digesting the experience or something, but I've really come to see that this might have a lot to do with Banjo's death and what she saw. And then again, her brain sort of waking up and her being more um, aware of danger in general in the world. So I finally called our homeopath about it. And she really helped me to, to nail down the Banjo connection. I had had it in my mind, but there was that 10 day lag and I just wasn't sure. And at that point I was still thinking it was purely a physical brain thing happening. And 
you know, we talked about everything that had been going on in our lives. And then she said, well, Amber, I just don't know if it's not like she didn't have a big round of antibiotics or some sort of injury or her dog died. I was like, oh, oh, Marcy, <laughs> let me tell you about Banjo. So the homeopath recommended aconite, which is specific for shock and for shock of death. And we gave her some, we all took some that day and um, she slept better that night than she has this whole time. And so we've been doing it every few days since then. And it's really seemed to shift things and very grateful for uh, homeopathy as a mother. It's just so amazing. I didn't, I didn't really believe in it until becoming a mom, which is a story I hear so much about and actually is going to be somewhat what we talk about in the next episode with Scylla Wetcott. Um, so there's that story. I've just been wanting to share that. I, a lot of people on Instagram have been wanting to hear more about Banjo and about um, what's going on with Nixie's sleep. And the other thing I wanted to talk about briefly that ties into today's episode is um, my recent journey with food. So in episodes 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22, we talked a lot about food and the intersection of food, healing, and the ancestors. And something I said in a few of those episodes, I think, is like, I really need to hear this because I'm pretty disconnected from food, um, at least in the way that I haven't been preparing it very much at all since Nixie's been born. I'm really lucky that Owen is a good cook and prepares most of our meals. Um, and I had a really hard time with food when I was pregnant with her, too. And I just remember being like, I'm going to need a total food reset after this kid comes out because I feel so confused about food. Uh, you know, Darla talked about this in episode 19, Darla Antoine, like diet culture and just how confusing food is for so many of us. And I felt that too, as someone who always wants to be healthy and you know, <laughs> trying to figure out what to eat and what's best. And it just gets so overwhelming. And then having a baby and feeling like you have no time to actually prepare the food you want to be preparing, especially if you're trying to put out a podcast and most of your energy is going there. But back in the spring, I was really looking at brain healing um, and just better brain function, wanting to feel less fatigue and wanting to have less brain fog and help people around me who are pretty brain foggy too to get better with that. And I'd also read the book, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer, which is amazing and you should read it. And another upcoming episode, we're going to talk about um, cancer with Tara Coyote um, and you know, both the, the recommendation is the same thing for both things for cancer and for any sort of brain health. And that's a high fat, low carb diet, the ketogenic diet. And, you know, I'm just thinking like, Oh, keto, like keto bros, like weightlifters, weight loss, what's this all about? And then I learned what it is. And it's really simple. You know, the body can live off of, can run off of two types of fuel. There's either glucose, which is sugar carbohydrates, or there's ketones, which you get from fat. And running off of fat is how our ancestors lived. And it is much preferable to running off of glucose. If you're running off of glucose, you're inflamed all the time. And you know, so many diseases, so many diseases, heart disease, diabetes, many autoimmune issues, cancer, uh, brain issues, so much more is made worse by running off of glucose, which almost all Americans are, unless you're specifically like eating a ketogenic diet, basically. Um, and running off ketones, it's just like the body goes into self-healing mode. The body goes right into self-healing when you are in ketosis. And of all the three macronutrient 
uh, categories, proteins, fats, and carbs, carbs are the only one that you could live without. You could live without them. They definitely have their place in small amounts, but you would absolutely die without fat or protein. Uh, we talked about fat too with Darla and I think with Yaya, Aaron, in episode 22. Um, so, you know, eating fat doesn't make you fat. It's just kind of like an accident of the evolution of language that those two words are the same thing, but they could they could be different words because they are different things. And it's so sad that we have that idea in our culture. And there's some good books out there about like how this all evolved, how we got the idea that eating fat makes you fat. Um, but you know, eating carbs makes you fat. Like we know that now that that's what, that's what gives, that's what creates the fat on our bodies. And I don't want to focus on being fat or weight loss. Um, cause I also very much have a problem with diet culture and fat shaming. Um, but I just want to like bust that myth real quick for anyone who thinks that eating fat makes you fat. It doesn't eating fat gives your body what it needs to heal. Every single one of your cells has fat in it, needs it. It's the lipid bilayer around each cell and especially the brain. You know, the brain is just a fat burning machine. Um, so about a month ago, a dear, dear, dear friend, my closest friend, the, the woman I've spent the most time with over the last nine years and her daughter is one of my oldest best friends too was diagnosed with cervical cancer. And she had borrowed that book from me back in the spring, The um, Metabolic Approach to Cancer. We both just found it really interesting. And so she immediately started eating keto. And I was like, I'm going to get back into it too. You know, I was loving it back in the spring when I was doing it. I felt so good. Um, and then we had this like horrible summer that I've talked about before, starting with me getting shingles. And then we just kind of reverted right back to comfort food, you know, but I knew I wanted to get back into it. And so her getting cancer and needing to eat this diet to heal because cancer cells live off of sugar. That is their fuel source. If you deprive them of that, they, they can't grow anymore. They can't spread. So, um, I decided to start eating keto again as support for my friend and because I wanted to do it. And, um, I just feel amazing. I love it. It makes me feel so good. And I love it that it is in a very like broad, um, broad sense connecting me to my ancestors, to the 99.5% of my ancestors and yours who were hunter gatherers and who were mostly focusing on animal fats and then some animal protein as well in their diets with minimal grain, if any, you know, I think depending on um, where they lived and what was available to them. And so if you had, I posted about this on Instagram yesterday and had a bunch of people interested in what resources I would recommend. Just last night, we watched this film on Netflix called The Magic Pill. Um, and I know that that's kind of an eye-rolly title because it just seems like too good to be true or, um, you know, that kind of marketing that's just trying to like grab your attention. But I understand also why they chose that title, because when the body is in ketosis, it can heal whatever is going on in it. And in the film, they look at uh, some Aboriginal peoples in Australia and talk about you know, their original diet and then how that changed when white people came along and introduced processed foods to them. And this is something I've always been interested in since finding the work of Weston A. Price and all the different indigenous peoples that he studied back in the 20s and 30s and how their foods 
And therefore, health changed so much when white people came in, Europeans, and introduced processed foods into their diets. And then the other part of the film is focusing on individuals, um, some someone with diabetes, a few people with diabetes, um, you know, weight issues, asthma, and actually a whole bunch of issues. They end up talking to a lot of people, and a six-year-old with autism, and that especially that story made me so emotional. It really hit me um, watching the place that this little girl was in, in her own mind. She's six, I already say that, at the beginning of the film. And, you know, they're just eating um, goldfish, Doritos, macaroni and cheese, highly, highly processed foods. Um, And bless her parents for being so open with this film crew about what they were eating and what they were doing. And so they throw out all that food And they teach them how to cook high fats, how to cook a diet high in fat um, and good fats, you know, not rats and fats and not, of course, vegetable oils or those kind of fats. Um, And they like document her first five days of eating this way and she hates it, right? She's freaking out her sister too. They want the food that they're used to and the food that they are literally physically addicted to. Um, Her dad actually talks about how it reminded him of when he was a drug addict and just desperately need that fix, that fix. But the parents, they know that this is not good for their children, that they can't do it anymore. And they have to take this opportunity um, to do this. And so on day five, the little girl, Abigail, finally shifts and starts eating the food that they're making for her. And you can imagine, I mean, you know, I'm talking about how terrible these three, now six weeks of Nixie not sleeping were, um, but five days of your kids, like not wanting to eat and not eating and freaking out about food. That just sounds absolutely terrible but they make it through and the girls start eating this good whole fatty food and within days within days abigail um just watch the film she she makes these changes she becomes more present um they had always had to feed her with a fork and she starts she just picks up the fork one day and puts it in her mouth And later in the film, they show her handing things to people when asked to. And her sister says, she's never done that before. And I just, I cried every time this child was on screen, especially as she's healing. And her parents are talking about all the changes they're seeing with her. Because it's so profound what feeding our body the right nutrients does for the brain, for the cells, for the mitochondria, for everything. And I, you know, a lot of people talk about the GAPS diet. Um, Yaya talked about that in episode 22. Very similar. It's just, you know, not giving our kids these crazy foods that disrupt their body systems, disrupt their very cells and ourselves as well. Um, You know, some of the weight loss stories are so dramatic in this film. And one woman who was on very, very high levels of insulin completely goes off her insulin after 10 weeks eating ketogenically. Um, And it's delicious. I love it. I'm like, this is the food I crave all the time anyway. Eggs, egg yolks, um, raw dairy works for me. So a lot of raw cheese and bacon and butter so much grass-fed butter (laughs) lots of veggies and it just I love it it's just it's been amazing um so some other some resources I'd recommend besides that film the magic pill are everything bulletproof you know a lot of people have written to be like you're into bulletproof that's so surprising to me and I think it's for the same reason that it seems kind of like bro culture and 
um, you know, techie and it is, but also like Dave Asprey is amazing and his story is amazing. And I love his books and I love his podcast and he really understands the science and the body and the mitochondria. Um, his book headstrong is all about mitochondria and it's just fascinating. Um, and the bulletproof diet is a lot stricter than just keto, but I really appreciate at least having that book around to refer to like, oh yeah, what did he say about this food and that food? And what's the science on this? And I'm a lot more flexible than the Bulletproof Diet, but it's still very much the foundation of the way I'm eating. And his podcast is incredible. I would listen to almost any episode at any time because there's always going to be very, very good knowledge in there. Um, I've also really been liking the podcast, The Keto for Women Show with Sean Miner. If you are a woman thinking about this, for sure listen to the first two episodes and they can see which other episodes speak to you. But um, there's definitely some special considerations for women. And it, keto is kind of a bro culture, you know, so I love uh, having that resource around. And then books by Nora Gedgadis, who is who is interviewed in The Magic Pill. Um, it's G-E-D-G-A-U-D-A-S. She has primal body primal mind i think it's called and then primal fat burner uh she's great she my gosh she just goes like deeper than anyone into all of it <laughs> super super educated super amazing and in primal fat burner she tells the story of her months in alaska not alaska um like near the north pole in the arctic studying wolves and how she just naturally gravitated to like almost a full fat diet and how amazing that was and how much weight she lost and how much clearer she was and like so many of us who are conscious of health and food, um, she'd been, you know, a vegan and even a raw foodist, I think, before that. And she couldn't believe how much better she felt. And so that kind of started her on this lifelong journey of interest in nutrition. And you can also look for her on podcasts. She's been on a number of podcasts and she's amazing. And um, maybe I'll invite her to be on this one someday too. I am going to take a little break from interviewing, but there will not be a break in terms of shows coming out because I really need to catch up on interviews I've already done. Um, okay. If you're still listening, thank you. Thank you for listening to me talk so much about things that I love talking about. Let me tell you a little bit about Angela Willard. Uh, she became a clinical herbalist through the Wild Rose College of Natural Healing in 2005. She has since practiced as an herbalist through many avenues, including consulting, growing herbs, wildcrafting, and co-creating the Harmonic Arts Botanical Dispensary. Angela actively adds herbal and health tools to her basket of wisdom by continually upgrading her knowledge with a strong focus on women's health and wellness. Her love for the sea has also led her to exploring and understanding the deep underwater world of seaweeds, which you will find her, which you often find her teaching out and about in the community. Her excitement for the positive impact on health seaweeds have on people and planet has her embarking on a new journey with a new endeavor called Seaweed Gardens. As this fall, she will be planting her first crop of ocean plants. We talk about that a little bit in the interview. Sharing information that empowers people to live with integrity and reach their highest potential is a true calling, one which fuels her on her path. Angela balances her time between raising a young family and nourishing her passionate purpose as an herbalist. You can find out what she's been up to on her company website, harmonicarts.ca, and watch for more to come from her newest work on seaweedgardens.ca. Um, I want to briefly mention here that when we talk about cancer-fighting properties of brown seaweeds and the fucoidin, um, as soon as we hung up, I told her about my friend's cervical cancer diagnosis and got on her website and bought her fucoidin 
extract for my friend and my friend is just so excited to take it and um, feels you know very blessed to have this medicine available and thank you so much Angela for harvesting these seaweeds learning about them knowing how to properly process them and make the medicine as strong as it can be and putting it out there into the world through harmonic arts we're so grateful to be able to have these um, for my friend and I also got her the five mushroom blend also cancer fighting um, and something else I just wanted to briefly mention since we just talked about ketosis and talked a lot about babies and children here and Angela's going to talk about that too in the interview is that babies are naturally in ketosis when they're breastfeeding. Um, breast milk has, it has some sugar, but it's not very much. And, you know, um, it's mostly fat and a little bit of protein. And so babies are, okay, I'm not a breast milk expert. <laughs> I know it's sweet because there's the sugars, but it still meets like the keto ratios of the macronutrient contents. And so little ones are in ketosis all the time. And if they're just breastfeeding, I think that's really sweet. And it's only when we start to feed them carbs that they break out of ketosis and can start becoming um, glucose burners. And if you're a glucose burner, you are inflamed all the time. And it's so hard to heal from that state. And I just love thinking about how indigenous people still eating their traditional foods and prehistoric humans were just so healthy and robust. Um, there was no degenerative disease, you know, there's always the odd um, cancer mutation. And that's just part of being human, but so much less, so, so, so much less than today. Um, and one final thing I want to say is that when I went into my email just now to um, search in me and Angela's uh, emails, I accidentally typed her name into like the Google search. And what came up was all these videos of her talking about seaweed. I haven't watched them yet, but if you're into what she talks about, I think you probably would be into watching these videos too. So you can just Google her name. Oh, and her Patreon offering, you guys, is a resource page. So you can go deeper into what she shares on this show because it's super um, like packed with information. The parts where we talk about seaweed, there's so much good stuff. Like if you're a note taker, you're going to be furiously scribbling things down. Cause again, if you have a body, like you want <laughs> seaweeds in that body. So there's books, cookbooks, books on the nutrition and medicine and topical applications, which we didn't even get into. Um, guidebooks, you know, like foraging your own studies and then websites to follow up on and, you know, um, things about the constellation work that we talk about and their seaweed product that they sell too. So that's it. Patreon.com slash medicine stories. You can check it out there. Beautiful resource page. Thank you, Angela. And so, yes, I also want to say, sorry, very quickly that at the beginning here, I kind of, um, I talk about a masculine and a feminine presence and energy that I was feeling. And I just want to say that I know that these binaries are, uh, what's the word? What is that word? Like, I don't know. I can't think of the word, but culturally constructed. I'm, I'm always aware of that when I'm speaking of masculine, feminine, male, female, that, um, of course there's so much, so much more and so much in between. So before you hear me talk about this masculine room I was in and then this feminine room that I went into and masculine presence and feminine presence, just know that I understand how culturally constructed these ideas are and that I love all the spaces in between. 
Okay, let's hear from Angela Willard. All right. Hi, Angela. Welcome to Medicine Stories. Hi, Amber. Thank you for having me. Nice to speak with you. Yeah, you too. So we we connected at the Good Medicine Confluence this year, and I just want to tell the the brief story of um, the day I went into your class. So I think we had spoken briefly the day before because you were in my um, ancestral medicine class with Mila, and this day... I could not decide which class I wanted to take. There was your seaweed class, and then there was another class that also was intriguing me. And my friend who I was there with, we were texting back and forth about which one to go to, and I said, I just can't decide, so you decide. And she chose the other one. So I went and I met her in the other class, and it was in that um, like industrial building, you know, where I think where you taught your... Um, the telassotherapy Yes, part. yes. Yeah. And it was just, you know, kind of like this very... It was a man teaching. It was a very masculine class, very masculine setting. And I mean, that's fine, but I just wasn't feeling it. And I wasn't feeling the subject either. And, you know, you feel bad leaving a class, even though teachers mm-hmm. always say it's okay. You just don't want to do it. And after like five minutes, I was I was just wanting to go to you so badly. And I was like, I got to go. And um, left that that environment, that classroom, that energy, and walked into your class, which was like, you know, you walk down the stairs to get there. It was just kind of a whole other feel. It was almost oceanic. You're wearing this like oceanic outfit, right? Do you choose that especially when you teach about seaweed? You had like green on. It was very flowy. Um, and I mean, sometimes I like to put, wear green or blue for for seaweed classes. Yes, yeah. And it really was like a it felt like a womb in that exactly. Classroom. Yeah. And then your energy is very um, maternal, you know, and female. And I just was really struck. Like I hadn't really realized, you know, what I was saying earlier about how masculine that space and class had been. But as soon as I walked into your classroom, I was like, oh. So this is just like the polar opposite of where I just was. And this feels like exactly where I want to be. And then I lost my mind over your content. Um, and we'll get into that. But first, I would like to um, I would just want to acknowledge that you're pregnant. Yeah, yeah. I'm um, 29 weeks tomorrow. I'm oh, so wow. expecting expecting a, a, a winter baby and and really excited to to nestle in into the colder months and and raise this child wow and how old are your boys my other two boys are eight and ten so um after i think it was it, it as you know it's it's a it's a big choice to to bring a child into the world and um having done so um twice before i i I think I overthought it, and so we, we it took us about three years to to decide and really go for it, and um, figured we just wanted to to have one more, one more experience with another being in that way. So wow, I both of my girls born ten years apart were surprises, and I just. Um, you know, long to have that experience of consciously conceiving, which I will not ever have because I'm not going to have another one. But that's so beautiful, especially to do it eight years later. I mean, you know, you're you're putting yourself back at the beginning in a very real way. I I am, and I I wonder sometimes if I if I forget what I'm in for a little bit. But also, 
I want to rewrite that story. And um, when we had our two boys, uh, we also started our business right in between. So we have an eight and 10 year old and then a nine year old business going on 10. So uh, (laughs) it was a really hard juggle for me, um, especially raising little ones and needing to be very committed and involved with um, building our, our work that was going to feed our children and our families. So um, it, I, it, it is a little bit blurry the first couple of years. And, and I felt, you know, my predominant emotion was frustration throughout, mm-hmm. throughout that. And I, and I wanted to, now that I've, we've landed and we've grown roots and, and things are a lot more stable in our lives. We wanted to um, do it in a, in a, in a different experience. So um, yeah, just, just for the sake of, of, of change and new and growth and, and new experiences. Um, it, even though we're having another child and have had two before, um, this is my fourth for my husband. Um, he also has a daughter from a, um, previous relationship, a beautiful 18 year old girl, uh, named Reishi. And, um, well, we just, we just thought this would be um, a whole new experience for us, and we're re- really looking forward to it. Oh, what a lucky baby. That's so sweet. Um, so, yeah, what are your boys' names, and do you, um, you know, you just mentioned Reishi's name, and your husband is Yarrow, uh, or Yarrow, <laughs> yeah, as I depends. believe you Canadians say. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And our, well, and our oldest son is Rowan. And like the tree, the mountain ash um, in these parts, uh, Rowan in um, more of the Celtic and Druidic culture, uh, and then the linden tree as well. So two trees for boys, uh, a mushroom for a girl, and not sure, we're really struggling actually with um, a name coming through uh, for this for this child, and um, I guess we just have to wait to meet him. Mm-hmm. Is it a boy? It's a boy, yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my oldest is named Mycelia. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. Yeah. It was funny because um, it was a joke I had made when I was two months pregnant to her dad. Uh, we were in the car and I was like, we could name her Mycelia. And we were like, ah. And really, by the time she came, we just didn't have a name. And then um, we did a lotus birth and, you know, kept the cord attached until it fell off on its own, which I did not do with Nixie, with my two-year-old now. Um, You know, we waited a few hours for the cord with her, but with Micey, we waited those two days. And then when it dried up on its own, we like snapped it. And then it just so happened that her, my dad, my mom, my grandma, and my partner at the time's mom were all there. So she had three grandparents and one great grandparent there that day. And we went out into the garden and did this like impromptu ceremony to say goodbye to her, to her um, placenta. And I cried, you know, it felt like the severance that I wasn't ready for. And, you know, it was a real pain in the ass carrying that thing around for those two days postpartum. Um, mm-hmm. But then everyone went inside and we stayed outside and we kind of ended up like presenting her to the sun in this way. It was very Lion King. We didn't mean it to be, but she was a little Leo. Um, and then we looked at each other and both of us were like, I think her name is Mycelia. Yeah, I, like that's her name. Wow. Yeah. Covered in goosebumps right now. That's beautiful. I love that story. Yeah. 
And, you know, it's kind of funny ever since. Sometimes I'm like, that's a crazy name to give a kid. <laughs> you know? And some people are like weird. And some people are like, that's amazing. And some people are just like, cute. That's pretty. Um, <laughs> but I just kind of hoped that she, that it would help her find her people, you know, that it would like attract the right people to her as she goes throughout her life. And she likes it. So. Well, and I also believe that a name is like, it's the strongest mantra you can have throughout your lifetime because you hear it so much. And mm -hmm. so the, the, the tone and the, the rhythm in which it's spoken and um, all of the different sounds have an impact on, on your being. And mm -hmm. so um, try to be really mindful around the quality of the name as far as how it will fit the spirit and help to carry it through this lifetime. And I've, I really wanted, um, as my husband is quite energetic and um, full of life, I was hoping to, to cultivate um, also some um, rooted and grounded qualities in our children, in our, in our two boys. So chose Rowan and Lyndon, partly because of the softness of the sounds as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how are those boys? <laughs> They're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> we're still we're working on it. <laughs> no, they're they're wildly crazy and I it's it's all I can all I can see is 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 such strong health and vibrancy. Mm -hmm. And I and I love so much that they have that that zest for life and and um, that wild edge to them, and um, also grateful that their father has um, that to to um, counter with them and play out with them in in ways that aren't me. I'm as you had mentioned, experiencing um, our first meeting. That I'm I'm very maternal and and. Um, more of a more grounded in that sense and so we do play strongly polar opposites to one another and so grateful that each other has the other end of 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 the gift of life that we could bring into that wholeness together as a family it's something that we really um you know acknowledge and honor within one another there those differences and how it brings um, strength to to the family and to the relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, again, lucky boys. I could really see that um, health and vitality in them, you know, just observing from afar um, at the confluence. They're really beautiful. And you can tell that they have a like living relationship with nature. Mm -hmm. Well, we, we're, we're fortunate to live in a I mean, I guess anywhere in the world, you, you're, you're, you have the choice to emerge into nature. And um, However, here on the on the West Coast, I find that um, they're able. We don't shy away from the from the colder months the way I would have um, at the foothills of the Rockies where I grew up, where it would get minus thirty, minus forty degrees Celsius in the winter sometimes, and it wasn't as much of, of an outdoor lifestyle all throughout the year. Um, whereas here, uh, the milder temperate climate, it really speaks to us and 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 resonates with with us on a cellular level so we're always wanting to be outside and and be in communion with either the land or the forest or the sea and, um it's a it's a lovely place part of the world with the from mountains to forest to to sea right right down below so mm -hmm. um and so did you move up there when you got together with yarrow 
Yeah. So we both studied at the Wild Rose College and um, we took our, our clinical herbalist uh, diplomas there or studied them. And then, and that was at the foothills of the Rockies in Alberta. And we wanted to come out um, to where there was more um, plant life. And so what's, what's interesting is, is even though in the, in the tropics, the, there's the most biodiversity of plants um, per, per square foot, for example, or per square meter. Here in the temperate rainforest, there's the most biodiversity of life, um, which, which um, is a great deal from the mycelium as well and, mm. and um, the fungi kingdom. So um, we decided to move out here. Yarrow had his, his mother has had already moved out here and we came to visit and knew it was right the day we arrived to visit that this is where we wanted to be. And I, I, I spent a lot of time in, in Alberta, um, begging plants to grow just based on the climate. <laughs> and, um, here it's, it's, it's a matter of cutting them back. And, and I just, I love that lushness and, and feeling as though I'm, I'm, my breath is inhaling the the plants in the environment. I just, I thrive so much on that. And so we did decide to, to move here about 15 years ago now and grow our family. Wow. And were you, um, so you guys really have this focus on mushrooms and seaweed. I mean, plants in general, pollens also. I remember at the confluence just being like, wow, they're just like next level. <laughs> like we're moving beyond just the plants. We're going to mushrooms, seaweed, pollens. Um, and I would think, yeah, with that, with that uh, temperate rainforest up there being so rich and heavy in mycelium, that perhaps that guided that um, interest and then being near the ocean. And yeah, I, I guess I just am curious about how those interests and focuses unfolded for you guys. Yeah, it was, it was absolutely from the bioregion we had found ourselves in. It, it wasn't something that we had studied a lot of other than some theory throughout the, the program that we took, um, but didn't have a lot of relationship with um, the algae, the, the macroalgae, the seaweed, um, or the the mushrooms, and so once we moved out here, it was really interesting how we branched into different loves of of nature within the realms um, of of Vancouver Island, and and Yarrow really um, resonated and drew towards the mushrooms, and myself with the seaweeds, and um, you know I didn't I didn't learn a lot about seaweeds much more than. Mostly bladder rack was what was in a lot of the herbal literature um, being good for the thyroid because of its iodine content. But it didn't, there wasn't a lot more on offer other than some basic kelp information. And so was really curious about what it was that they had to offer because I was convinced that there was there was so much based on their energetics and their beauty and their and and their their ability to communicate felt so strong that they had a message and and gifts to share. And so um, just started to really dive deeper into that. And then on the other side of um, also becoming a mother and really, um, knowing that time being so important to focus on on my health, I started to really explore and expand on on women's health. And more and more, I started to learn that the seaweeds were really something that could support 
um, times of transition uh, that women go through cyclically throughout their life um, where they need that extra uh, nourishment and, um, and, and medicine, so to speak. Before we go further into seaweed, let's um, address the question that everyone will have, which is about, you know, toxicity and radioactivity issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the, they are they are the oceans and the Earth's cleansers, as are many of of um, plant life and um, mushrooms and seaweeds. They're 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 all. Um, bioremediating as, as the, throughout their life cycles. Um, and so one of the things with seaweeds is they do tend to uh, remove radioactive isotopes and heavy metals from the ocean. They also deacidify the ocean and reduce um, carbon emissions in the atmosphere. So they're powerful. They're, what I love about them so much is that they're they're actually regenerative. So they do more than than bring things back to neutral. Um, they actually help to to heal the planet um, based on where it's at today. And so it's it's something that um, is really important for us to to look deeper into and into how we can work with them further without having that that fear of them having those uh, toxicity factors. And so really um, a lot of the radioactive isotopes like the, the strontium and the cesium, they're very heavy, heavy, heavy particles. So they tend to sink down deep into the depths of the ocean. And that's where, um, you know, a lot of the... Um, it, it ends up in the in the in the food chain, primarily concentrated in the in the deeper cold water um, fish like the the tunas and and so um, it's it's more um, you have to proceed more with caution based on the the fish that you're eating if you're concerned about those aspects of radiation. Now with the seaweeds, uh, they do absorb um, iodine. And they don't decipher whether it's uh, natural iodine or a radioactive isotope, which is the harmful version um, that once we ingest can affect our thyroids, our um, ovaries, our testicles, our um, the colon and breasts, primarily in those areas. Um, so the radioactive iodine has a very short half-life. And basically, once the seaweed is harvested and dried, if there's concern of there being radioactive iodine within the fronds, within the seaweed that you're going to consume, if you leave it out to dry for 60 days, then that, that iodine evaporates out of it and there is, it will test it, um, to be clear um, after that point. Now, that's only if it's growing in areas where it is needing that kind of cleansing. Uh, so there was, a, there was a big scare. I'm sure many, many of us heard it about the Fukushima and the, the um, iodine coming over to um, this part of the world, the West Coast, especially here and being absorbed into the seaweeds. Well, the only indicator of um, radioactive iodine levels changing after that incident was about two weeks later, and it came through the clouds and it came through the rain. And that blew through and and then everything was back uh, at stable levels. So all in all, 
Um, we do have the ability to be careful with our choices with with the seaweeds that we are we're consuming, especially if we're willing to wait a little bit a little while after we harvest it or after we purchase it. Now, generally, once once you're purchasing um, some seaweed off of the shelves, for example, they're probably have already been harvested for um, at least a six month uh, or sorry, 60 day period. So um, usually you're safe even just purchasing the seaweed um, as is. And there's also very strict testing. I know in Canada, but also um, happening in, in the U.S. now with um, certificates of analysis for quality control and making sure that it is safe um, for human consumption. So what you're going to find on the, on the shelves in the stores is um, usually going to be very safe. And if you need to take that extra step of precaution, you can wait the extra time. The other part is if you are going to be wild harvesting yourself, then um, just being sure that if you're, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere that you are um, not harvesting seaweed any, anywhere south of industry or cities. So if you can go north um, of, of, a, of, a big, of a big city or um, metropolis, then, then you are more likely to, to find um, cleaner patches of seaweed that you can harvest from. And you do want to be sure that you're doing it sustainably if you are harvesting yourself. So you just give it a little haircut up top, the fronds, the, the leafy bit of the seaweed, never pulling the seaweed directly from its holdfast, which is similar looking to a root that holds on to the bottom of perhaps a rock or a seashell or some wood, or it fastens on to something um, so that it can stabilize as it's growing and not just float around um, the ocean. So you'd never want to pull that off. You just want to generally cut the top third of the seaweed frond or, or leaf. It looks like a leaf. It's called a frond. Um, so for, for your, for your consumption. And then that way it can continue to grow and respore and, and continue to reproduce. So it's a sustainable way of, of harvesting. And then one last thing to look for is if you notice that there are a lot of green seaweeds in the area uh, and, and there's a lack of balance and it's mostly um, green that is predominantly taking over the area um, growing seaweed, that they are really heavy feeders. And so they can be indicators that it's not the cleanest area to be harvesting from. So if you, if you have a nice balance of reds, greens, and brown seaweeds in the area, um, which are all the three color categories that um, nature offers them, um, then, then you know that it's quite likely a very clean area to be harvesting from. Uh, those reds, greens, and browns are color categories, but they also seem to really break down into like nutrient categories as well. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So they they have overall seaweeds have an um, they're generally they're very high nutritive and mineral, um, vitamin mineral content foods. Um, so overall, all categories are high in vitamins and um, minerals, about 
let's say, 10 to 20 times the amount of land plants. Um, And then as far as amino acids go, um, they're they're comparable to legumes and eggs. So they're, they're very good nutrition for us to be consuming. However, there are other aspects um, medicinally that we don't want to consume too much. It's, it's, it's as we know, um, or you may have heard before that the, the medicine or the poison is based on the dose. And so um, we look to cultures that have been consuming seaweeds for uh, a long term to see what is a, um, you know, a safe amount. Now, we don't want to necessarily go right up to that amount that uh, the Asian culture, for example, um, in Japan, where it's very widely consumed on a regular daily basis and has been um, for a very long time. So so the body's ability to process and, and work and recognize um, the nutrients and the components in the seaweed is is stronger than ours in North America, for example, where we have kind of um, forgotten the um, the ways of of eating seaweeds and including them in our daily diet. So we want to start low at about two to three percent of our overall daily consumption of food being seaweeds. And over time, and, and a long period of time, so gradually building that up, up to a maximum of about 10%, which is what is consumed um, in, in, in Asia. And, you know, the, they'll even eat about seven to 10 different species um, throughout the day as well. So um, a lot of variety is very important. And the reason I like to talk about variety is because of the red, green, and brown factors. The more variety of those colors that you are consuming, um, the more you're going to get a holistic, full-spectrum benefit of what the seaweeds have to offer. So um, essentially, um, the greens and the reds are quite similar. They're, They're mostly immunomodulant, um, especially the greens, uh, based on something in them called the ulvins. And so the immunomodulating properties basically helps with either overactive immune systems or underactive immune systems. And there's a there's a, an intelligence in there uh, within the seaweed that it it knows how to give the body what it needs based on what it's missing or um, based on if there's um, too much going on and it needs to cleanse that from the body. So um, mostly greens are very helpful for um, immunodeficiencies or uh, autoimmune disorders. Um, and then, of course, they're, they are high in iron and um, they are, again, the true sense of a superfood um, where it's a lot of nutrients and very little calories. Also, all seaweeds really are the only superfood um, that I know of that really uh, can attest to to that statement of, of being high, dense nutrition and very, very low calories. Um, and then the reds, they are, they're, they're mostly antiviral. And um, it's the, the, the branch, the, the sulfated polysaccharides in the reds that help 
the body um, keep viruses from penetrating uh, the cell walls. And so this has been known in industry for years and has been even in, used in uh, contraceptives is, is quite often you'll find red seaweed extracts in contraceptives uh, for the sake of, of blocking STIs uh, from, from transferring. And so um, they're often in lubricants or um, used on condoms and, and such so that the, it helps to prevent the spread of any viruses. Um, also in red seaweeds, there's, um, they have an antiparasitic effect. And so this is one of the reasons that you wouldn't want to eat copious amounts of red seaweeds on a regular basis. So anything that has a very strong antibiotic or antiparasitic or antimicrobial effect, um, it can be too strong on the body in, in larger quantities. So uh, there's the, it's called the domoic and kyanic acid components of the red seaweeds um, that help with, um, as a vermifuge, helps with um, any kind of worms or uh, intestinal parasites that could be contracted um, through through food or water. So that can help keep the digestive tract clean if eaten on, um, on a regular basis in smaller amounts. So that would be, smaller amounts would be about 1% to 2% of your daily diet of reds. And so that even includes uh, nori is, is considered a red, uh, dulse, those are the two um, most popular reds. Um, Irish moss, uh, the carrageenan extract that comes from Irish moss is um, is is also a red seaweed. However, carrageenan and agar they're the two um, parts of the red seaweed that help with um, emulsification and binding and gelling properties that we'll use in all kinds of industry and painting and um, toothpaste and ice cream, like in everything that's thick. If you can imagine any substance that's thick, it quite likely has seaweed in it, um, specifically the reds. Um, although they have a very strong ability to gel, they don't have a lot of bioactive to them. That that part of the, the red seaweed. So even if you see that there's carrageenan, uh, for example, in um, your almond milk, uh, it's not going to have any bioactive um, action on your body or benefits the way consuming whole seaweeds would have. Um, and then we'll go into the browns. Um, generally, all the, this is where all the kelps live in the brown category. And they are my favorite in the sense that they um, they they really address a lot of the issues that uh, we see today in people's health. Um, specifically, um, there's a there's over a thousand studies on their ability um, to create apoptosis in cancer cells, and um, it's a it's a it's an aspect of the brown seeds called fucoidin that uh, what it does is is cancer can go um, it can be really stealth and hide in the body until the immune system's ability to recognize it can be a bit too far gone and it's already taken a stronghold in the body so what fucoidin does is, is brilliant is it goes around uh, to these 
foreign mutagenic cells and flags them to the immune system and helps them recognize them as foreign and invasive so that it can then follow suit and do its job and and work to eliminate these these rogue cells in the body so that's a really important piece that is is being recognized um, all throughout the medical industry um, across the planet right now in many studies. And, and what's really exciting about it is not only is it a very effective approach um, to help support the body working through cancer, but it all can also be helpful in conjunction, they're finding in the studies, with conventional therapies like chemotherapy and radiation. So there's a lot of um, concern in the medical world around using complementary therapies and herbal therapies alongside of conventional medicine um, when it comes to cancer therapy, whereas so far until this point, um, none of the studies have come back as it being um, interfering. It's actually something that is supportive to the two working together. Um, and then the all of the seaweeds do have iodine in them. Um, however, the brown seaweeds have the highest amount. So if you're if you're looking to increase your intake of iodine, then you really you want to focus on the browns for that sake. If you're looking for getting the least amount of iodine, then focusing on the reds uh, would be more ideal because they have the the least amount. Specifically, the nori has the least amount of iodine. And that would be so for things like a hyperthyroid condition, or if you're concerned, um, if you're working with Hashimoto's then, and you're concerned about um, iodine feeding, feeding the thyroid, then you would, you could still work with seaweeds, but focus more on the reds and, and that way the body can still get the, the vitamins and minerals that it needs. Now, all of, all of these seaweeds are, are, fantastic for a vegan diet or a plant-based diet um, because of their high amounts of minerals and amino acids and iron. Uh, so, so that's one, one area where I would most especially recommend that if you're not getting those building blocks from um, animal proteins and um, animal sources of food, then making sure that uh, you're getting enough seaweed in your diet to, to supplement those needs is, is quite important. So um, iodine, as I had mentioned before, is uh, used and accumulated in um, the thyroid, breasts, uh, ovaries, testicles, and the colon. And what iodine does is, is it can help protect the body from absorbing any kind of environmental toxins, um, specifically in the form of xenoestrogens, um, which um, basically are delivered to us via plastics and heavy metals and even and some, some fungus. And so the receptors in the body um, basically, if they are topped up with sufficient amounts of iodine, they will protect the body from absorbing uh, the xenoestrogens and the, the environmental tox toxins that, that are circulating more and more 
um, around in, in our planet, unfortunately, um, from penetrating our bodies. Um, and so along with that aspect, the protective aspect of the iodine, um, in conjunction with something else in the brown seaweeds called alginates, uh, which is a, <clears throat> it is, it, it's a, it's a, a basically an insoluble fiber that moves through the digestive tract and it acts like a toxin sponge. And it's, it's brilliant for especially heavier particles like heavy metals and um, just cleansing out the GI tract um, from, from any, any kind of um, bits of, of, food or that can be stagnant and, and haven't moved all the way through, just cleansing out the colon. Um, and then, of course, from heavy metals and uh, radiation, it's like a toxic toxin sponge. It just gathers all that up and moves it straight out through the body. So it's between the iodine, which prevents the absorption of these particles, and then the alginates that moves it out. Um, it's a really great shield that we can use in consuming kelps on a daily basis to protect our bodies from from the from the distortions of of, of chemistry that have been happening through industry. So. Um, overall, I've, I've just been finding that when I'm working with anybody's health uh, in consultation and there are hormonal imbalances, um, stress from lack of, well, number one from lifestyle, but then um, combined with lack of um, proper nutrition um, to support um, stressful processes in the body, um, any kind of environmental toxicity buildup, uh, issues with digestion, um, uh, fatty liver is a big one. I didn't mention that, but um, the brown seaweeds also help protect against fatty liver and encourages um, the liver to, to uh, dispel any, any fat accumulations around and deposits around the liver. Um, it's been shown in, in studies that is a very effective um, approach to to work with fatty liver, the non-alcoholic version, um, because there's um, fatty liver that can be acquired from alcoholism, and then there's also from a, a high f um, fat and sugar and carbohydrate diet. So um, when it's especially from uh, imbalanced diet, the kelps can help to counter that effect of the of the fatty liver that is is a result of of such a diet um so there's i mean there's there's just so much it's it's usually the number one um recommendation i'll make for any health um concern is um to to start to bring in a variety of reds greens and brown seaweeds into the daily diet um, in balance of all three colors. Um, it can be in dried form, uh, fresh, cooked in um, soups and stews, um, used in salad dressing. In I put it in my kids' oatmeal. Um, it's a really easy medicine to incorporate into your food. So it's one of my favorite ways of, of letting food be my medicine is, is consuming seeds on a regular basis and, and 
sticking to that. And overall, I find that um, maintaining those choices helps to to keep me um, resilient in in a lifestyle that is pretty full on between um, raising children, growing a a baby, um, building this or keeping up with this this the life of this business that's taken um, its own its own vitality and and just needs more and more um, attention and energy to to keep it moving. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's amazing. <laughs> it's just it's like overwhelming how uh, how just how amazing seaweeds are and what and their interaction with the human body and it really just seems like medicine for these times with all the toxicity issues. Uh, that's happening and one in uh, two men and one in three women will get cancer Mm -hmm. and they're expecting that number to greatly increase in the next few decades Um, seems like everyone I know is being diagnosed with autoimmune issues lately yeah and you know there's just it's just uh, just amazing (laughs) again let me use that word for a third time Um, that these these ancient life forms that have been in the oceans forever can be so supportive of the specific health crises facing humans today. And I, and I, I almost feel like that's why the use and practice of them went to sleep for a while because it wasn't, it wasn't needed yet. And that, that it's starting to wake up again because, because the call is there and they're answering it. And, um, you know, between the seaweeds and then, of course, the mushrooms, which have a lot of similar properties, mm-hmm. but work in biologically completely different ways, which is fascinating, um, but with similar results. It's it's a really holistic approach to be eating your seaweeds and your mushrooms um, as regularly as possible. They both dry up really well and and so even if you don't find that you're in a climate zone that is offering them up um, for you to to harvest directly, uh, you can still um, source them and know that they will be generally of a, of a very integral quality. So, for example, with seaweeds, they keep their shelf life for, unlike herbs, which is one, maybe two years at the most when dried and stored properly away from heat, uh, light and oxygen. Um, when you have them um, contained properly, they keep their nutritional profile for ten years. Wow. So, so you can do a big. You can you you can go out and and travel somewhere where you feel really comfortable um, to do one harvest for your for yourself or your family or your community, and and do it every five years if you need to. Um, they also are the fastest growing organisms on the planet. So not only are they cleaning um, the atmosphere and the ocean as they grow, they grow really quickly. So it's such a regenerative, sustainable resource um, that doesn't require land or irrigation. Um, so we can, um, so for example, the giant kelp, that grows out in these waters is the fastest growing organism on the planet. And it can grow up to two feet during it, the height of its season. Um, what, so two feet a day? Two, two feet a day, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And then the, uh, another one that's out here that um, is just such a beauty is the bull kelp. 
the Nereocystis lutkiana, and that's the second fastest growing organism on the planet, and it grows about 10 inches a day. And so they, they, their life cycle is so fast and so, so wondrous. Like it, it, it's, it's, we, it's offering its food um, to us in, in a very sustainable format. And, and so it's, um, it's important for us to be consuming these seaweeds. It's, it's, they, they can keep up with uh, the amount of, of people on the planet right now. There are a lot of successful um, uh, cultivation models, aquaculture models that are embracing um, seaweed, seaweed cultivation and specifically the kelps that are growing so quickly. And so it's, it's becoming a solution for um, supplementing foods with, with the proper um, nutrients that people are needing. Um, it's also, um, at this point, they've they found that the kelps are, um, when about 3% of kelp is added to livestock's diet, it's minimizing methane emissions by 90% mm. from livestock. Um, so, so there's just, there's, there's so many, um, pieces to working with seaweeds that, that helps heal, everything across across the planet in in so many ways and so i really encourage um people to to consume seaweeds because in doing that it's is also creating more demand which is creating uh, more farming of the seaweeds uh which is done yeah it, it's basically the more we grow seaweed forests the more we're giving um homes for um all the marine life and all the biodiversity within the oceans and so um, it's something that we really want to encourage because um, these forests also help to um, keep the 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 currents um, regulated within the within the seas and then and lessen the impact of the waves on the shores um, and also then a lot of the seaweeds that uh, are offcast from the storms remineralize the earth too when they're washed up along shore. Oh wow! Yeah, I remember you spoke about uh, using seaweeds as like compost, as compost tea, right? Hmm. Yeah. There's a couple. There's a couple of ways that you can do that. I was just visiting um, my good friend Prani Radigan in in Ireland in June when I went to speak at the Seaweed for Health conference there, and when we went up to her place in Sligo and. She was showing me how she, they put a very thick layer of seaweed mulch on their gardens um, at the beginning of the um, winter season. And so that it has time throughout the storms to break down and, and, and be like a slow release of, of nutrients back into the gardens. It also really helps um, because it is a, a damp climate there with the slugs. So when they don't like the um, the saltiness of the seaweeds, so they stay away. But then also when the seaweeds are dried, they can slice their bellies on the um, on the seaweeds. So they stay away from from the garden beds when the seaweeds are on there. So it's really great at, at feeding um, the soil. And then also um, from for mulch to protect it from weeds, um, from growing um, so that you can grow what you're choosing to grow. 
uh, and and then also um, from certain pests as well. Wow. And uh, that woman that you just mentioned, she's the author of, of the book, right? The Irish Seaweed Kitchen. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's fantastic. She, yeah. she grew up um, in uh, northwestern Ireland and um, it, with seaweed as part of her daily life, and it still is. And um, so it has a lot of wisdom and folklore to share around seaweed. And yet within her book, she's also... Um, she's also approached a lot of chefs from around the world that work with seaweeds and ask for their favorite recipe. Uh, and then, and then the photography and the layout is beautiful in this book. It's just, it's a really nice user-friendly way to, uh, start incorporating seaweeds into your, into your culinary explorations because it's, 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 it all tastes good and it's really easy to follow. Mm, um, I love that on this podcast we've talked quite a bit about food and ancestry and you know using food as a way to connect with your ancestry and I've really been uncovering my um, Scottish and just last week I found Irish in there I knew it was there (laughs) I knew it was there and um, ancestry DNA updated its results you know the science is always getting better so the uh-huh. same day I got new results that finally showed Ireland, I actually found like genealogy in my family tree on Ancestry also, um, people in Ireland. So it's a um, powerful place. It's, it's, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I, I had just gone there for the first time in June and, and I couldn't believe how the land spoke to me. I didn't expect that because I had, I had, have traveled a, a, a fair amount before, um, rooting in with family and it's rare that I I felt that and really the first time I had felt it so strongly was coming here to the west coast uh but now since going to Ireland uh it was another strong sense of uh the land telling stories in in ways that hadn't been covered up or distorted like it was just so Mm. clear and Mm. and beautiful what a lovely lovely magical land yeah, when I see photos of Ireland and the Scottish Highlands, it just it just hits me in a way that nothing else does. And mm-hmm. yeah, when Nixie's a few years older, <laughs> I want to take mm-hmm. everyone. Um, yeah. So, uh, um, okay, that makes me want. There, I have so many seaweed questions, but we do have limited time, and we'll get into some resources before we hang up and like further reading for listeners. But I wanted to ask you. You said that you worked with. Um, family constellations and I've always been really curious of what that technique is and how it works can you tell me a bit about your experience with it yeah um well it's it's a, a family member of ours is a is a, a facilitator of of working with constellations and so I've done some work with her guidance around um basically the theory is that all of the answers are in the force, in the matrix, in, in essence, in, 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 in life matter that surrounds us and, and is interpenetrating us. And so when we're, when we're looking for um, confirmation or guidance or direction and have trouble accessing um, that within, then there's a way in which... Um, constellations are facilitated with other beings in the room, but it can also be done with objects um, where 
um, the questions are asked to either the objects or the other beings in the room that then um, are able to embody the messages and sometimes the the spirits that in which that the the person that is on the learning journey and asking the questions within the process can ask and access and it it, it was very powerful to see how especially when there was neutral people in the room that didn't know one another um could come in without any kind of preconceived ideas or notions and just and just be an open vessel for what was to come in and the guidance that was to take place within it all. So we've worked with it a few um, times um, for our own family direction, sometimes our business direction, um, just when we feel really at a loss for um, decisions and we've gotten all of the concrete uh, information that we need to logistically make a decision but then when we need extra um, help within the heart and spirit realms we've um, gone to this person uh, who's helped us um, find answers that were already there inside but just to hear them more clearly from an objectionable kind of point of view as to see it kind of all happening um, outside so it's it's definitely it's it's not something that I've ever facilitated, but I've participated in and found great value in um, throughout difficult times and process. And it's, it's similar, I think, to, to any form of divinity work where it's being asked to, to the greater spirit um, for help and, and just an, another tool of a way of, of hearing or receiving that information. And does this um, relate to your relationship with your maternal grandmother? Well, in there was one, the first time that I took part in um, a constellation, it was a, um, it was specific to uh, healing the feminine ancestral lineage. And my maternal grandmother passed when my mother was three and um, unfortunately along with her passing a lot of stories were lost and I think because of the pain that was experienced from such a, a, a premature loss um, in my family's life um, the, the family members that did know her a lot of uh, their, the stories were not spoken after that and so I, I didn't, neither my mother nor myself were able to really uh, um, know the, the stories and that line and those roots um, other than just through feeling. And so being able to work within the constellation, it was, it was profound to, to hear and to bring her, bring her essence back in and ask some questions and, and I think that they were all within me um, as I was in her at one point when, when she was living, um, as my mother was being formed and in, in, as, an, as um, one, of the, one of the eggs that was being, going to be conceived from my mother at one point. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I feel like it gave me such a profound sense of getting to know 
her and understand her in a way that felt so mysterious for so long, I could really touch in with her essence and know who she was and, and what she had wanted to bring to this line that uh, had otherwise been cut off through through direct forms of communication in, uh, in the physical world. Mm, wow, that's... Yeah, that really makes me want to explore that work. I've had it recommended to me so many times. That um, yeah, beautiful. Well, yeah, and it's and it and and if and when you do embark on on those um, experiences, you'll you'll probably notice the similarities of of throughout many cultures, um, different forms of divinity that have a similar theory. Mm but perhaps just a different way of, of um, expressing it. Like um, uh, perhaps it, it could be um, compared to tarot work or it could be compared to, to working with ruins or, you know, there's um, similar forces at play that are, are um, offering up that information. Mm-hmm, like different uh, systems that reflect you back to yourself exactly that's right yeah um so okay let's circle back to seaweed quickly i'm thinking if i was listening right now and was a total newbie that these might be questions i've had so um of course people can find a good identification guide for their region you recommended pacific seaweeds which um, i got and it's great but something that really blew my mind that I think he says in that book and maybe you talked about it too is that there's really like only two species that are not good to consume it's like a really across the board you can harvest and take seaweed yeah and that now I mean that's and just um for clarity that's for here in the pacific north northwest and those are the seaweeds I've studied and I know know best um so there's there's um, one called Prionitis and one called Desmarestia. And so the Prionitis, um, the bleach weed, it smells like bleach. And um, as soon as you encounter it, you're turned off and not really wanting to consume it anyways because of its strong smell. Um, and the Desmarestia, the acid kelp, it's got a bit of a, it, it burns a little bit on the hands. It's more acidic. Mm. Uh, so you wouldn't be drawn to also consume that seaweed, or if you put it in your bucket with your other seaweeds, it can it can start to burn holes through the other seaweeds. Now, none of them are like mushrooms, though, so they're not. There, it's not a lethal um, decision if you're not clear or educated properly on on the seaweed species. Uh, it's a lot safer to explore. Uh, seaweeds on the coast than mushrooms in the forest if you're a novice. Uh, ideally, you are going with someone that knows. Um, however, I I can safely recommend that or, or did choose for myself um, to go out and start to learn a little bit with a guidebook. Um, and it was okay to nibble a little bit here and there. The worst that would happen if I did consume some of the prionitis or desmarestia is, is some severe indigestion. And I'd be uncomfortable for a couple of days and it would run through. Um, and that would be it. So 
Yeah, it is good to know that piece. Um, but ideally, you are getting a, a, at least an intro class from a phycologist in the area that knows the seaweeds and can point out uh, the ones to look for that you don't want to um, consume or harvest. Mm. Um, yeah, I was just struck by it. Like, it's so neat that they're so renewable and regenerative because you know as an herbalist you really get in the mindset of conservation all the time and this um almost scarcity mindset around it you know which is just being responsible a responsible Mm -hmm. harvester but and not that i'm saying just go out and take it all but it's really neat knowing that you're working with something that has the ability to regenerate itself at that level that's right and so it's again most important to recognize that uh, tearing the seaweed off of um, what it's holding on to is not a regenerative process. And so going out with a pair of scissors when you're going to be harvesting and and just giving it a little haircut is, is ideal. <laughs> I'm um, struck too by the parallel between the seaweeds and the mushrooms as being such modulators for so many bodily systems and really just helping to like support life and the life force at a really deep level like working with the vital force and both of their roles in like remediation and regeneration of ecosystems well it's it's there's a level of intelligence there that seems i don't want to say advanced it's not like greater or lesser than but it's it's different than um what we're used to working with um within our gardens um there's a there's a and i think probably because it's it's the it's underneath like the whether it's the mycelium that's underground or the seaweeds that are underwater there's something about that sub level of communication that can uh, work in different ways that is it has more of a magical feel as to beings that are more um, conscious level, um, you know, above ground where they where they operate day to day. I just I there's there's something about going swimming with the kelps in the ocean and seeing them each and every one for their own spirit and the and the way in which they speak to you is so profound. It's it's like nothing else to to be under there with the community of kelps and meet them each one individually as their own being and and it's it's one of the most magical sensations that sounds lovely <laughs> um i miss the ocean um, and I also wanted to ask about, you mentioned putting like seaweed in your kids' oatmeal, but are, do you have other tips or other ways that you incorporate both seaweeds and mushrooms into your daily life and make sure that your family is ingesting them? Well, yeah. I mean, just this morning we, we had chanterelles with eggs. Um, that's a, that's a, one of our favorites with, for mushrooms. Um, but we also do, um, mushroom drinks. They, they, they have a real nice earthy flavor. So I'll do, um, medicinal mushroom hot chocolate for my kids. Uh, you can make a, a really strong mushroom tea and then add some cacao powder and some maple or honey. Um, so that's one way I, uh, smoothies is always really great. Um, whether it's fresh seaweeds or dried, I can pop that into their smoothies. Um, one of my children, he'll live off of 
um, beach seaweed and garden kale and raw broccoli. Like he just <laughs> loves that. The other one, it's like if it has any color, he's not interested. <laughs> so I've had to, so especially for my younger Lyndon, I've had to really get creative in for um, with my ways in which I, I put them into the foods. Um, putting um, them in smoothies is always just such an easy way to do it. Um, and or hot drinks in the wintertime, hot herbal drinks with a little bit of honey and some kind of fat, whether it's um, uh, a creamer from a nut or um, butter or um, whatever your, your choice is to, to add fat, just because it then slows the absorption and um, then they get the most out of the medicine. Mm-hmm. And they also love the flavor. Kids... No, I think we all do. I think we all thrive off of good fats. And so oh, yes. I'm sure to add that in. And it's a really good vehicle as well, as is the sweetener. The sweetener can be a vehicle to drive the medicine further into the tissues. So making sure to include some of that um, in, in the drinks is something that I know is benefiting them. If I'm pairing it with... Um, bioactive, um, nutritive foods, if it was just sweetener for the sake of sweet, then, then that's something else, but it is a great delivery mechanism into the body. Uh Uh-huh. Right. Deeper into the tissues. Mm -hmm. And then lastly is, is the broths and, um, you know, you can, you can make a really rich broth with all of the medicine and then add in the things that they like and know that that base, that foundation is, um, nourishing them in the way that you're intending. Mm-hmm. Um, you also, I remember, spoke about using seaweeds in your ferments, like you make sauerkraut and. Yeah, yeah, and th- that was something I hadn't mentioned. Um, uh, raw brassicas are goitrogenic, um, which means when we eat raw broccoli or kale or anything in the bro- brassica family, they actually require more iodine for um, absorption for the body to process um, these foods. And so what I do is I, for a couple of reasons, that reason for one is because of the iodine content in the seaweed, I add it with my, my ferments, my sauerkrauts. Um, But then also it helps it from going mushy. Um, So, so the extra iodine helps to counter the need for more iodine in eating the brassicas, but then also its ability to absorb water. So a dried form of seaweed will absorb 10 times the amount its weight in water. And so it can be really helpful if you're struggling with um, mushy krauts and and ferments, which can happen um, at the beginning when you're just getting that balance and that art right. Uh, So seaweed seems to help really mitigate that issue. and then you guys, Harmonic Arts, you sell uh, powdered and small little flakes of, yeah. um, of seaweed and, and mushrooms as well. And we've been using the powdered reishi in our morning um, coffees or teas that we also have butter in and mm-hmm. just been sprinkling your seaweed mixture, you know, onto our food. And that's kind of been my uh, intro into incorporating those foods into my daily life. Yeah, those are those are definitely 
some of my favorite products um, in my household with with my kids is the mushroom powders. They're so easy just to make those drinks or add to sauces or soups or anything really. They just and they absorb in um, really minimally. Like it's not like there's a bunch of grit in the kids. Yeah. Is yeah. um, and then the sea veg. It's called a sea veg blend. I just I love this because it's got a blend of red, green, and brown seaweeds in flaked form. So really, um, you know, a tablespoon of that a day is all you really need for your seaweed needs. Um, uh, and, and it's simple and easy, and it doesn't have a strong flavor. For some that are really sensitive to the flavor of seaweed, that's, that's, a, that's another aspect. But usually it's because your body has... It isn't used to absorbing its um, glyconutrients, so the the, the fucos in the seaweeds, um, the cell receptors take a little time to remember if seaweed hasn't been a part of your diet in your lifetime or even in throughout um, your ancestors' li- lifetimes through the last um, twenty to. 60 years, um, then it can take up to two months of a little bit of seaweed each day for you to start enjoying it again. And so we see that often. Um, and then all of a sudden, people can't get enough of it once their bodies know how to process it, um, which seems quite naturally the way, um, you know, you would ha- have an aversion or an attraction to something based on how, how your body's ability to process and work with it would be. So um, the sea veg I love because it can go really, it can it can sneak into other foods um, without taste, or you can have it as a feature, um, as a garnish, and it and it can really enhance the flavor as well. Seaweed has a classic flavor called umami, which is that that special um, sixth flavor that uh, is kind of like a universal flavor of all of the flavors tied into harmony in one and um, very big in in Asian culture and cuisine and um, it's it's through the seaweed that 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 flavor is acquired uh, yeah my uh, my two-year-old loves the sea veg you know mm-hmm. if I put it on her food she just tries to eat the seaweed on top <laughs> just mm-hmm. leaves the food and more 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 kids love seaweed they mm-hmm. really do I feel like they're we're born um, ready to um, absorb and 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 use seaweed. It's just if a number of years go by when it hasn't been introduced in our into our diets, um, other than maybe the odd um, piece of sushi, uh, then it can take a little longer to to start to enjoy for some. But I would recommend pushing through that because over time people I've, I've yet to see as someone that has had it regularly not enjoy it over you know a few weeks to a couple moon cycles time mm. um well as we end i'm feeling called to circle back to to the beginning of our conversation and to read back to you something that you wrote to me in preparation for this interview you said the greatest journey of healing i've experienced is in raising a family Prior to committing to family life, I had led a very independent, transient path, 
14 years into my partnership and raising our children together, I have been called to face so many depths of learning and soul work that I would have otherwise been able to walk away from and find the next great adventure to bring instant satisfaction. The long-term work we've been doing as a family keeps me rising to higher and deeper levels of myself than I have ever known. Mm, it's so true. Yeah, just really struck by that and really resonating with you as a as a mom. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's my greatest joy and has been the biggest amount of work to maintain and, and, um, it's it's definitely stretched my levels of commitment and loyalty in ways that I never knew possible. And the rewards that have come through that have been manifold. And uh, it's always in these sweet little moments uh, that that are invaluable. And yet the greater picture is is a wonderful thing too. But it's that those those moments of connection and love and and seeing your impact make a difference on um, the lives of the people you love, including yourself, which has also been a big um, full circle learning for me is I, I definitely put myself last and still work with that um, within my family dynamics. And however, now I see putting myself first is the best thing I can do for them. And, uh, and it feels really good too on my end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was lucky to have learned that eventually with my oldest and been able to incorporate it as much as I can now with my little one. And I found too, you know, we, we have similar lives. We run a similar business while mothering mm-hmm. two kids and, uh, with our partners, you know, just being in full partnership as far as family and business goes. And, um, you know, it's just amazing as, as a mom that your, your time is so limited, your quote free time, your time away from intensive mothering that I just find I get so much done in my like nine to 12 hours a week that I'm not intensely mothering that it's just like, I'm so much more focused and, um, efficient than I was before being a mom. And it's so gratifying, isn't it, to know those abilities are so strong and able and and rewarding to take that time and have that contrast from um, doing you and and then doing family. And like even right now speaking with you is is the most wonderful thing. I, I'm so grateful to have this sacred space quiet um, surroundings to to be here and speak and commune with you in this way um, that isn't so um, like the other end of of my life which can be it can be feel very chaotic you know in the throes of it all and so to have those balance is going to bring me back to my family after I leave you here with so much joy and appreciation for the excitement and the <laughs> that kind of tigger kind of energy that I um, <laughs> everything is is um, vibrating at a much higher level mm-hmm. <laughs> in a different way. It's I love the contrast. It's uh, it 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 keeps me in a space of gratitude throughout throughout it all. And 
um, I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to, to do both. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Angela. It's just, I mean, hearing you speak about the seaweed, I, I know that you present at conferences and um, are really, I'm, I'm thinking like emerging as a leading voice in this movement because it seems to me like it's been somewhat underground. You know, there's not a ton of books. Um, it's hard to find the information. Um, and I'm glad you're doing this work. And I wonder if you, what's on your horizon? Have you thought about writing a book? I, yeah, it's interesting. I, I've, I've been thinking about it for so many years and I, I need to figure out that balance of going deep in the book and staying deep with my family and then still connected to the responsibilities of this business. I dream mostly more than anything is writing a book for herbalists uh, around working with seeds, uh, something really in depth for um, in the language in which we use uh, within herbalism to apply it um, on a daily um, and clinical level too. So um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely something I, I need to um, follow through with. I have half of it written. It's mm. just... Um, it's just getting that that last bit. And then I'm also really excited to be, um, because I believe so much in um, the seaweeds, I'm, I'm starting a seaweed um, gardens, it's called Seaweed Gardens, and we're going to be growing kelps out here in these waters too, just as a way of giving back and doing something to model after a regenerative um model that I can then share with others as as a sustainable practice that we can all be doing here um, in the Pacific Northwest waters. That's amazing. And that seems like it could really be a a teaching space as well. Yeah, well, and then, and lastly, I'm um, affiliated with the Wild Rose College, um, where I studied and did my clinical herbalist program. Um, my husband is currently the director of it as his, his father, Terry Willard had created it. And, um, it's been, it's been going for about, gee, 30, almost 50 years, I think now. Um, and it's a fantastic program, but it's uh, still has yet to add a, um, a seaweed component, which I'm, Mm also working on in tandem with the book to to offer this uh, seaweed course hopefully um, by springtime is my goal early spring which is going to be um, when the start of the next seaweed season is so that will be probably about february march um, through the um, wild rose college of natural health and where can people find you online um, well, two places um, really is Harmonic Arts, www.harmonicarts.ca um, is the, um, the company of, of plant medicine that, that, we, um, that we source and create and, and make all kinds of concoctions um, for people's good health. And then um, the wildrosecollege.com 
is where my uh, seaweed course is going to be up on offer come um, early spring. And then uh, there will also be a mushroom one offered by next fall as well. Wonderful. Uh, I'm just so glad you guys exist. <laughs> oh, well, it, was, it was really great to meet you um, this past spring and uh, hopefully get to see you again in person soon. I would love that. Yes, I would love that too. Um, okay, thanks, Angela. Thank you, Amber. Thank you for taking these medicine stories in. I hope they inspire you to keep walking the mythic path of your own unfolding self. I love sharing information and will always put any relevant links in the show notes. You can find my blog, Handmade Herbal Medicines, and a lot more at mythicmedicine.love. While you're there, be sure to click the black banner across the top of the page to take my quiz, Which Magical Herb is Your Spirit Plant? It's a fun and lighthearted quiz, but the results are really in-depth and designed to bring you into closer alignment with the medicine that you're in need of. If you love the show, please consider supporting my work at patreon.com slash medicine stories. Um, there's some cool rewards there, like exclusive content, free access to my herbal ebook and online course, and the ability to chat with me. I am a crazy busy and overwhelmed mom, and adding another project into my life with this podcast is a questionable move. But I'm also so excited about it and just praying that the Patreon will allow me the financial wiggle room to keep doing it. Another way that you can support if that's not an option is to head over to iTunes and subscribe and review the podcast. That would be super helpful. Thank you. And thank you to Marie Sue for providing the music that I use. That's Marie with two E's, S-I-O-U-X. This is from her song, Wild Eyes, one of my favorites. Uh, check out Marie Sue. Beautiful music. Thank you, and I look forward to next time. Bye.